All right, well, kids, you can go to your Bible study with Kingdom Kids. Pastor Steve is going to take his group to their doctrine study. Pastor Jim is going to take the young adults. Everyone else, we're in Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. So go ahead and take a moment to find a Bible. You can say hi to the person to the left or the right of you. And then uh, open up that Bible to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. Hey, Pete, is this on? This is on, right? Can everybody hear me okay? Okay. How are we doing, church? Everybody good? You know, on Wednesday night, it's fun for me to step down from the pulpit and start walking up to people. And some people are like, oh, hi, pastor. Other people are like, oh, gosh, I hope he doesn't get closer to me. <laughs> He's not going to preach from right there, is he? That's all right. I'll go back up. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 5. Well, uh, he just left, but I do want to say thank you to Pastor Jim for filling the pulpit for me last week. We were on vacation, and uh, thank you to the church for giving us time away, time with family. We had a wonderful time. Thank you for everybody praying. Uh, a lot of people are asking, when is the baby due? If you don't know, uh, Melissa, we're expecting our fifth child um, at the end of this month. So today's May 1st. The baby's due. The due date is May 26th. So um, very, very exciting. Thank you for everyone that has been praying for us. And specifically by us, I mean pray for Melissa. Thank you. And, well, yes, yes, pray for me, but pray for the baby. And everybody's doing well, thank God. And... Um, Tonight's passage is kind of a, um, it's, it's kind of a aside, it's kind of uh, the author of the book of Hebrews speaking as a pastor, as we're going to see in a moment, as he continues to explain and proclaim the supremacy of Christ over all things, he's going to speak directly to the church that he was writing to, in a kind of a prophetic way, in, a, in not just a pastoral way, but speaking directly to them, but What's amazing about God's word, this miracle that we call the Bible, is that even as the author of Hebrews was thinking of a specific people, like real people with real problems, just like us, God's word uses that word to speak to us even today. And of course, God's word is always sufficient. So uh, as we do on Sundays, let's rise together. I'll I'll read it together. We're going to start out in verse 11, Hebrews chapter 5. And we'll go to the end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. 
God, we thank you for not only the reading of your word, but we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would attend to its teaching, preaching, receiving, believing, and living now. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Thanks, everyone. So as you studied last week, the author of Hebrews is continuing to proclaim the supremacy of Christ And in this uh, section of the book of Hebrews, it is about how Jesus is not just a high priest, Jesus is the high priest, and as Pastor Jim taught you so well last week, he is in the line of this interesting Old Testament priest, Mechizeldek. Now, what we have to remember about the Bible is the Bible is a book inspired entirely by God. It is breathed out by God, as Paul says. Every word is from God. But God uses men to communicate those truths. And those truths are communicated through men, prophets and apostles, to specific people, God's people at different times in different places through God's redemptive narrative history. So what's my point with this? It's to say simply this. This is not just theology. This is theology as it meets reality. This is God's word, not just abstractly, but God's word personally. God's word for a specific people then and God's word for his people today. Not just his people today globally, but his people today intimately here even in Colts Neck. So as we Here, the author of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, take a little bit of a break from kind of extrapolating what this high priesthood of Mechizeldek is. He speaks directly to the people that he knows, the people he loves. And he speaks as one who loves them and knows where they're at. How many of us are grateful that the Lord gives us Not only what we want to hear, but what we need to hear. Now, whenever I say that, I don't always get a huge amen to that. (laughs) Because we we do. There's something in us that always wants to hear what we want to hear. There's passages in Scripture that we continually return to. And it is Scripture. It's God's Word. It's God-breathed. It's it's sufficient. It's, 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 uh, It's clear. It's beautiful. It's powerful. But there's plenty of Scriptures that perhaps we wish weren't in Scripture. There's plenty of Scriptures that we actively avoid. Many of you uh, have probably heard of the Jefferson Bible. Has anyone ever heard of the Jefferson Bible? Now, it's not necessarily a translation like the New International Version or the King James Version or the English Standard Version like we're talking about. It is a Bible that you can even see at Thomas Jefferson's Museum down in Virginia. Thomas Jefferson, while he had a faith in God, he once had the audacity to take an exacto blade and cut out all the passages in the Gospels, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that were supernatural. He wanted to just understand Jesus' moral teachings, and that's all he was interested in. He was only interested in Jesus as a moral teacher and Jesus as a moral example. So he cut out, literally, can you imagine doing this? Taking an exacto blade, to God's sacred word and cutting out the parts that he didn't want to believe. 
that he didn't want to receive, that he didn't uh, think fit with his understanding of who God was, right? Now, we might be shocked by that. And as oftentimes leaders and politicians are, there's quotes of Thomas Jefferson saying things that seem to suggest he was believer in God and a Christian. So even as we are disdained by Thomas Jefferson, part of us, while we don't have the audacity to take an exacto blade and cut out the parts of the Bible that we don't like, that are not comfortable, that are perhaps not politically correct, perhaps we do it practically because we tend to avoid what we don't want to hear. And that's why it's so important that we hear what we're about to hear in Hebrews chapter 5, because it is a rebuke. God loves us enough to chide us, to challenge us, and to rebuke us. Listen, friends, as the father of four kids, would I be a loving father if I never corrected my children? In fact, you would say the opposite, that I clearly don't care about my kids and I must not love my kids because I'm not correcting my kids. No, love not only cares for, not only provides and protects, love corrects. Love rebukes. We can learn about that even in 1 Corinthians 13, where love is patient, love is kind, love keeps no record of wrongs, but love rejoices in what? The truth. So here's the truth, tonight's truth in Hebrews chapter 5. He takes a break from talking about Jesus as the high priest in the order of Melchizedek, and then he talks to this church, to their hearts. Verse 11. About this, we have much to say. I'm in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. About this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Let's stop right there. I mean, uh, how different translations translate the, the Greek for that, dull of hearing. Sometimes it's laziness. Uh, there's other translations that talk about sloth. The, the big idea here is that he is going to challenge them. Now, how do we understand not only your entire Bible, but how do we understand the book of Hebrews? Because one of the most encouraging passages in all your Bible was just from the previous chapter. So how do we go from him rebuking this church because they're dull of hearing and they're acting like children with the simple reality of what he just proclaimed? All the way at the end of chapter four, not Two or three passages earlier, he said, Since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, Hebrews 4 says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in the time of need. Does this seem like a paradox to us? Because it shouldn't. Because sometimes we have a vision and a view of God that's not based in a real person, that's not based in any kind of real, practical, moral, volitional way. God truly is a deity, divinity, but he has a clear moral conscience. He is a good, loving father. 
So the truth is here is that both are true. The truth is here is that both are true. If you are looking for strength in your time of weakness, if you're looking for grace when you're tempted, you can push forward with confidence into the throne room of grace. Isn't that great news? What about for those of us that get so complacent, get so apathetic, just get so content? Now, I'm preaching in the choir. You're here on Wednesday night, right? So this is, may not be us. But we go through seasons where we're fine with just the milk. We're fine with staying where we're at. So yes, we do find grace in our time of need, but how many of us know there's seasons in life where we need a word of kindness and of grace? And there's seasons in life where we need someone to give us a spiritual holy kick in the pants. And you can quote me on that. It's true. And that's why we see not only both in the Bible, we see both here in back-to-back chapters, back-to-back passages here in the book of Hebrews. So, friends, true grace guides. True love leads. Strength is recognizing our weakness. Passages like this reveal the heart of our good Father. He is both tender and he's tough. He welcomes us as we are, but will not leave us as we once were. As much as our Heavenly Father is faithfully generous, He's also, friends, perfectly jealous. As much as He's faithfully generous, He's also perfectly jealous. Once Oprah, the very popular former TV show uh, personality, was asked why she doesn't believe in biblical Christianity anymore. And there's a lot of different reasons she probably could have guessed. I would have probably assumed it was certain reasons, but she said it was this. She said she couldn't come to terms with the fact that God is a jealous God, that somehow God is above jealousy. You see, when God loves, he loves with a perfect, burning, passionate jealousy. Why? Because when he wants you He wants all of you, your heart, your affections, your attention. He will not let his bride, his family, his sons and his daughters worship any counterfeit savior or any false god. He just won't. He just won't. He doesn't. So this is our faithful, generous father, but he's also a perfectly jealous God. He's jealous for our worship. He's jealous for our heart's devotion. He is jealous for his glory made manifest in our lives. So when we come to this passage, we see four things, four symptoms. Almost think of it like you go to a doctor's office, right? When you go to the doctor's office, he does his physical. Well, this is almost like a spiritual, okay? What we're going to see is the book of Hebrews in this short passage is going to give us four symptoms of spiritual apathy, four symptoms of spiritual immaturity. And the question to ask ourselves right now is not, well, who does this apply to? This is probably applying to the person sitting to the left or right of me. No, because then we would be defying the very first one, which is what? Dull of hearing. Have you ever wondered, and perhaps we should be more shocked by this, that when we first heard the gospel, perhaps we didn't grow up in a Bible-believing Christian home, right? 
right? So perhaps we weren't Christians or we went to some kind of nominal, whatever, traditional, not biblical Christianity, right? And then you first heard it and something in you is like, this is so offensive. This is so weird. I want to get out of here, okay? So your first response is not, this is freedom. Your first response, this is bitterness. This is bondage. And then God saves you. God miraculously makes you new and makes you alive and you're born again. And then every single word is for you. Every single word is life. Every single word is freedom. The prodigal comes home. But then what often happens? The prodigal becomes the older brother. The word that was always for us, the word that was life and freedom is now always for the person sitting next to us. The person that we wish, man, I wish that person was sitting here tonight. If he... That person needs to hear this. That person, you talk about a swift kick in the pants, pastor. This person that's not here right now, he needs to hear that. She needs to hear that. What you're about to hear is symptom number one of spiritual immaturity is dullness of hearing. We can listen, but we don't hear. This is for somebody else. It's not for me. No, it could be for us. You could know your Bible really, really well. You could have impeccable church attendance. Everyone else could be very impressed by your personal holiness. And this could still very much apply to us, to me. The first symptom is dull of hearing. The second symptom, I'll actually read all four, is that we have been taught, but we're not teaching. The third one is we're unskilled in the Word, and the fourth one, is we're swayed by the world. So dull hearing, not teaching, unskilled in the word, and swayed by the world. So he says, you are still children, you're dull of hearing. And then here in verse 12, he continues, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracle of God. You need milk, not solid food. Let's pause right there. Okay. Is this passage talking about the office of pastor, elder, teacher? Probably not. So he's not saying that every single one of you should be a teacher in the proper sense. But he is saying, I believe he is saying, that every single one of us that is a believer should be sharing our faith and should in some way be teaching that faith to others. It doesn't need to sound like the preacher. It doesn't need to sound like the pastor. You do not need to be Billy Graham. In fact, you won't be Billy Graham, but all of us are called to share. All of us are called to teach. All of us are called to proclaim and to evangelize. All of us, every single one of us, right? Listen, friends, I want you to try to wrap your minds around this. The gospel's best understood when it's shared. Like, I, I, I know some church traditions, and I know some Christians that, man, their doctrine is airtight. Like, they got it. Systematic theology, A++++, right? They've read every single book. Uh, they have tens of thousands of pages of doctrine in their house, in their office. They haven't shared the gospel with anyone and not days, not months, not years even, I would submit to you, they don't understand the gospel. 
The gospel is best understood when it's shared. Friends, not only that, we know this, right? Some of us know this. Some of us who are evangelists know this. The gospel is best experienced when it's shared. Oh gosh, I mean, I I get chills just even thinking about it. Like when I'm entering into what God's doing, it's not like I'm leading this person to Christ. It's not like I'm saving this person. It's not like I'm helping this person find salvation. What I'm doing is, is really just participating in what God's doing. And when I sense such joy, even though it's not easy and even though it's hard and even though, yes, it's frustrating at times. And yes, they'll look at you like you're weird sometimes. Man, when the Holy Spirit is all up in that conversation, there is few better feelings in all the world. Amen? Okay. How many of us, you don't have to nod your head, don't raise your hand. The question is, how many of us have no idea what I'm talking about right now? Like zip, zip. No idea in what it means to teach, to share, to proclaim, to evangelize. That's the problem here. He's saying, all right, hold up, hold up, hold up. Before we talk about McKizzledeck, time out. Are we sharing this? Are we teaching this? Do your kids know this? Do your wives know this? It's time to grow up. It's time to move on. It's time to start diving deep and then opening your mouth, right? He says this in verse 12, for though at this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic oracles of God you need milk, not spiritual food, okay? So the first sign of spiritual maturity is dull hearing. The second sign is not teaching. And then he gets into the analogy of food. Verse 13, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Let's stop right there. Okay, so my goodness, aren't we all children of God? And isn't that a beautiful truth? Isn't that a beautiful, like, we never graduate beyond being a child of God. I'm good. You could add as much titles before my name. I never want to get past that. That's going to be my reality, not only in this life, but in the next. So yes, Jesus said, you must enter into the kingdom of God as children. But friends, there is a difference between being childlike and what? Childish. There's a difference between being childlike and childish. 1 Corinthians 13 puts it like this. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is what, church? Love. How many of us know that we could be growing older physically, but not be growing more mature spiritually? You could be around on planet Earth longer chronologically, but still be at the same place in your spiritual maturity. So he uses the analogy of milk and food, right? He says this, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. 
If we're going to move past being childish to being childlike and to put our childish ways behind us, what do we need to do? He connects our diet to the word. And how many of us know it's true? You've heard the phrase, right? You are what you eat. I would submit to you, you are what you worship. We become what we behold. I know from experience that when I fill my mind with mindless junk, right? And listen, I love sports. I love politics. I love even uh, pop culture, movies and stuff, right? If I just fill my heart and my soul with even some of those good things, like even just some of those like innocent things, what happens? My spiritual diet changes. My spiritual desires diminish. It's harder for me to be still in God's presence. How many of us know that how long it takes to sit and be still in prayer is probably a good indicator of how much we're praying? I know that when I have a hard time just entering in and being still and getting in God's word, man, I've probably lost sight. My diet's messed up. My spiritual intake is off. So he's saying here is that you don't survive on milk. Now, when we're babies, we're born to crave milk, right? Our mother's milk. We desire that milk, and that milk nourishes us. So yes, the milk in its proper place, at its proper time, is a good thing. Listen, if someone comes off the street, I always have these conversations with people here in this town, right? They have views of Christianity, views of God that are just out there, just out there. And I have to figure out, by God's grace, all right, what bridge do I build here? Because if I came down heavy with the hammer of orthodoxy on everything they say, that would be the end of the conversation. I might win the argument, but I'll lose the person. They need milk. New believers need milk. And by the way, just as a caveat, this is not saying that we ever graduate from the gospel either. This is not like saying, all right, we need the good news of Jesus Christ to save us but now we're gonna move on to bigger, better things. Oh, no, 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 mercy. Mercy, Lord, help us. The bigger, better things isn't like politics or the bigger, better thing isn't you know, figuring out some kind of uh, new, interesting theology. No, 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 we don't move on beyond the gospel. We go deeper into the gospel, right? So what does that mean? Is it means simply this, is that we're called to feast upon the bread of life, to feast upon the manna from heaven, and the Bible is described as a source of sustenance, a source of strength. What did Jesus say? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that comes from the mouth of God, of our Father. So you need milk and not solid food. So the question is, the question that we should all ask ourselves, as I asked myself even the last couple days, is... What is the Lord calling me to eat of? What is the Lord calling me to feast upon? Okay, here's the truth. Milk is good for a baby. But how many adults just drink milk to survive? How would I do, how would my personal physical health do if only drank milk all the time? I mean, even think of innovator Steve Jobs. What killed Steve Jobs? He was on an all-fruit diet, and it destroyed his pancreas. 
one of the most brilliant innovators of our day and time, you know, as far as you understand worldly innovation. He only ate fruit and it killed him. None of us can survive on milk, but for some reason we think that having this very thin, superficial understanding of the Bible and scriptures is enough to sustain us, to satisfy us, to carry us, and to also sharpen our sword in a world that is against us? No, we need solid food. How many people are familiar with Michael Phelps? You know the name Michael Phelps? When you think Michael Phelps, you think what? Swimmer. Not just swimmer. Perhaps the greatest swimmer ever, and perhaps the greatest Olympian ever. And I don't know if you've ever heard about when he is participating, competing in the Olympics, how much food this guy eats. Because he's kind of my hero, right? Here's his breakfast. Here's Michael Phelps' breakfast right before he swims in the Olympics before the whole world. Three fried egg sandwiches with cheese, lettuce, tomatoes, fried onions, and mayonnaise. Two cups of coffee. One five-egg omelet. One bowl of grain. Three slices of French toast topped. And three chocolate chip pancakes. Praise the Lord. That's his breakfast. You'd have to roll me out. I wouldn't eat for days. At lunchtime, he eats one pound of pasta, two large ham and cheese sandwiches with mayonnaise on white bread, plus energy drinks. At dinner, one pound of pasta, an entire pizza, and even more energy drinks. How does anyone eat this much and then still look like a chiseled Greek god? Right? because he burns it off, because his body is so trained, his body is so disciplined, his body is so conditioned that he takes in the heavy intake so he can use it in what? Competition. Friends, when are we the hungriest? When we work. When are we the hungriest? When we compete? When are we the hungriest? When we're using our bodies for their purpose. Part of the reason, perhaps many of us, some of us, maybe only one or two of us tonight, don't crave God's word is because we're not exercising. We're not using the gifts that God has given us and it's not developing in us a true spiritual appetite. Does that make sense? That's number three, unskilled in the word. Number four is swayed by the world and we'll close with this. Verse 14 but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. This is going to be more and more needed, friends. As our culture becomes more and more secular, as the clear delineation of light and dark will become more and more obvious, the church has to be more and more discerning. We really do. We really do. Now, this doesn't mean that we look for a heretic in every single church. It doesn't mean we look for a heretic in every single pastor, preacher, Bible teacher. There's a blog claiming everyone's a heretic everywhere, right? But no, this does mean that we're discerning. This means that we know falsity when we hear it. Many of you know this. I've used this analogy before that those that work for our monetary financial system, those where their specific job is to 
discern what is counterfeit monetary, what is counterfeit money, and what is not, they don't focus and study the counterfeit bills. What do they study? They study the real thing over and over and over. They pour over every single nuance of the dollar, of the 20, of the 50, of the 100. They know every single little detail, so much so that their eye is so trained that if even a little bit is off, they just know something's not right. Here's the truth. I believe a lot of the people that the book of Hebrews was inspired to then were Christians. We're Christians. So I do believe if we are truly elect, born again, and saved, that nothing could separate us from the love of Christ, neither height nor depth, nor powers. But the enemy can still deceive us. He still does deceive us. The only way the enemy can have any power over us is if we believe his lies. Do you know what is true? And do you know what is false? This is not a matter of just religious trivia. It's a matter of life and death. Not only for your good, but for those that God will have you share the gospel with and teach. Amen? All right, I'm going to pray and we'll invite Frank and Hope and then we'll spend some time in court.